Hi, my name is Simon Luckhurst and this is Biological Poker, the first season of Ear Movies. This story is called Irk, The Last Whaler. This is one of my favourites of the series. It's kind of why I left it until last, which is ironic, I guess, because it was the first of the stories that I wrote. I was working in an office and my friend Mark Carey and I were chatting and, as you do, the concept of a talking horse going to France and World War I emerged. I really can't say how we got there, though. Mark egged me on to write it, but when I eventually did, I don't think it was quite the same story he was thinking of. At that time, I had children who were at the same school as David Field's girls. Sometimes we'd catch up while waiting at the gates for school pickup. When I started to write the story, it was his voice I heard in my head. It carried images of the outback, isolation, men and horses, and the sounds of Australians at war. So before any of the other stories were written, I showed Irk to Dave and he suggested it as a perfect script for an animation. When the idea for Ear Movies came up, I ran into him again and he said he'd love to read it. Like so many others of the readers of this series, he was able to do the job at home. As a testament to his professionalism, he provided me with two or three different readings for many parts of the story. Dave's appeared in a bunch of Australian film and TV. He directs as well. And if you get the chance to see him perform music, he plays a bloody good mandolin too. I hope you enjoy the story. Erp the Last Whaler. Bluey was born on poor luck a tiny property that had long ago run aground on the hard, vast dirt of the Mallee. By the time he was 17, at the height of that interminable summer on the eve of the Great War, he was working near the Queensland border, clearing land and building fences. He swung his tired axe against iron barks that lived up to their name and shoveled endless red dust in the shimmer of the heat haze, working closer to the horizon than most men will ever know. He lived on damper, tinned beef and black tea and grew to love his battered canteen with its damp canvas cover that kept the water inside as cool as the month of June. His only company was an ancient travel-battered copy of Homer and Irk, his thick-set chestnut horse. In the evenings, he'd read aloud by candlelight under a sky the size of forever. And so it was that Irk came to understand English. Why do they call you Bluey, he asked one evening, another in a long series of eucalyptus and starlight. You have red hair. The words fell quickly to the ground, landing like the pit-pat of bilby footsteps. Bluey let them lie there. It wasn't that they were profound or distressing or funny. It was just that he didn't know who had said them. Had a stranger stumbled upon his camp, Bluey's shock of red hair, the first thing he saw. Had a Major Mitchell escaped a distant cage to fly here and torment him in the night? Had too much time alone caused a degenerescence of his cranial contents so that he was now a loon? Or could the words somehow have come from Irk? The night was warm and Bluey was stretched out on top of his swag. He looked up at the unfathomable mist of stars above him at the unimaginable distance between them. Surely somewhere in all those miles, there must be room for a talking horse. And so it was. 
that they began to chat. Well, it's one of those things, Bluey said, like the fat kid at school we called Bones. I'll never understand you two leggers. Apparently you do, Bluey said, his words crossing the distance between them with the speed of brown water in an outback river. Bluey rolled a cigarette and lighted it with a sudden wattle yellow flame of a sulphur-saturated match. He rolled another, lighted it as well and passed it across to Irk. In answer to your question, humans are sometimes perverse. We say one thing and do the opposite. Sounds stupid to me, said Irk, coughing slightly. In the animal kingdom, we operate with honesty and instinct and nature. In winter, we go slowly and in summer, we eat like, well, horses. And in spring, we gamble and frolic and flirt and strut and then we rut. It was Bluey's turn to cough. When he next spoke, it carried with it echoes of deep phlegm and insight. Humans like contradictions, Bluey said. We fight for love argue for peace, lie to protect the truth, and compromise to uphold ideals. Irk smoked in silence for a while, snorted, and then moved closer to the fire. He sat down with his back against an old red gum log. When I was a colt, I ran a lot, ate the greenest grass I could find, drank at the wildest creek. I was quick and solid and strong. One day I was galloping for the sheer hell of it, down off the snowy mountains, along the long river where the only danger was putting your hoof in a wombat hole, or so I thought. I was with Wilf, a roan two-year-old. We were as free and as fast as you could imagine. We galloped that day like you've never seen, practically flying over the turf. When the ropes hit our necks, we hardly felt them at first, but we were quickly pulled up and surrounded by nuggety men on nuggety ponies. All too quickly, we were brought to the ground. That was the first time I laid eyes on Steve Farrell. He was a hundred years old if he was a day, wiry and tough and learned, and there was nothing about horses he didn't know. He broke me, you see. And you always remember a relationship like that, don't you? Irk stretched out a front fetlock along the back of the log and took a deep drawer of his cigarette. Bluey watched the tip glow viciously red. He broke me and named me on the same day, Irk explained. For some reason, Bluey felt a magpie of jealousy swoop down and snap its beak much too close to his heart. There were other things that happened to Wilf and me that day too, Irk continued. Men shape iron and bend it to their will. Then they use it against us. Irk took a long, last lingering draw of his cigarette. Painful memories, huh? I don't want to talk about it, Irk said. It was brutally hot, long before the sun had crawled into the morning's nursery of a cloudless sky. As Bluey worked, he realised that the time passed more quickly now he had someone to chat to. He'd find himself resting his head against the long handle of his shovel as he and Irk explained the world to each other. What's this about a war? Irk asked one afternoon. Bluey paused from his work, taking the time to look upon the long queue of fence posts that now stretched all the way back to the heat haze. Not certain of the politics of it, Bluey admitted. Sounds serious, though. In a war, you're allowed to kill people? Well, actually, it's compulsory. In some places, they shoot you if you don't. 
In that book of Homer's, they fight because a prince runs off with someone else's queen. By all accounts, the woman was happy to go with him, yet they had a war for 10 years. How many heroes died? How many helots? Struth. I mean, how many funeral pyres, including Troy itself, were worth all of that? Bluey shrugged. You don't ask those questions, he said. You serve king and country and do your bit. Irk snorted and shook a thousand flies from his mane. One Friday, about three weeks after they started chatting, Bluey went into town for supplies. Hebel was a lively place that night because the annual picnic races were the next day. At 10 o'clock, the pub doors reluctantly swung shut and men tumbled to the ground and slept where they lay. Others staggered to their beds or to their wives or to other men's wives. Irk and Bluey rode a short way out of town and set up a swag. Bluey rolled himself and Irk a cigarette, then passed Irk one of the two long necks he held. Thought we might stick around tomorrow for the races, he said, then lifted the heavy glass of the brown bottle to his mouth. Irk drank some of his as well. This racing. Think I'd be any good at it? Bluey shrugged. You said you were fast, but are you racehorse fast? I used to be, Irk answered. Don't think I'm in top condition right now, though. As if to prove his point, he farted loudly. I'm not the best rider anyway, Bluey said. Shame. Could have been fun. I could ask the other horses to let me win, Irk said. Would that be helpful? Next morning, Bluey signed them up for the toughest race of the day. Ten furlongs. Three laps of Hebel in the hot afternoon sun. He was told that Irk wasn't up to the race, that he was throwing his money away. Bluey put money on the race to win and took several side bets as well before leading Irk to one side. Are you sure about this, he asked. I've gambled my whole pay and all my savings on this race. Jesus, what? Irk asked. I said I'd ask them. It doesn't mean they'll say yes. Bluey looked at Irk, his eyes as wide as Nellie Melba's ass. A bit of a communications mix-up, Irk said. Bound to happen when the species mingle. No harm done. You're flaming kidding me, aren't you? Bluey said. This is everything I own. All the money we have for food. Nature will provide. I don't eat grass, Bluey reminded him. And just to be clear, those ciggies you've grown so fond of, not to mention that beer, will disappear quicker than piss on the pin down if I lose all my money. Oh, this is more serious than I realised, Irk replied. Bluey waited nervously while Irk trotted over to where the racehorses stood patiently in the corrugated iron shed, which leaned further to the left than Billy Hughes. He watched as Irk wandered between the other horses. Fifteen minutes later, Irk returned. Any joy, Bluey said. Irk looked up. Yes and no, he said. You have to remember that racehorses are bloody competitive creatures. They live to win. There's not one goes into the track without thoughts of crossing the line first. I had to give him a sob story about how you were going to shoot me if I lost. What did they say? Most of them said they'd help, but bloody starlight's going to be a problem. By two o'clock, the sun was roasting Hebel alive and the pub had already sold more cold beers that day than it would for the rest of the year. Men revered their tall glasses of froth-topped amber more than life itself as they briefly forgot the harsh realities of their lives. Only a few men leaning in close whispered of a landing in Turkey, rumours arriving like cinders on the wind. Meanwhile, Irk and Bluey had trotted to the edge of town and now stood together under an enormous cooler bar, its spreading branches the only shade until the next one half a mile away. They stood and smoked. 
Crikey, do you really want a gasper right now, Bluey asked. They grow on you, don't they, Irk said. What's the plan, Bluey said. Geez, you ask a lot, don't you? Starlight's a bloody quick horse. The others were in awe of him. I secretly think they agreed to let me win because they knew they had no chance against him anyway. He won't help us. He doesn't know how to flame and lose. Well, that's really unfortunate, Bluey said. Irk looked at him, at the cigarette he held, at the nearly empty tin of tobacco in Bluey's top pocket. Got to think of something, he said. I feel like such a drongo. At three o'clock, the horses assembled at the starting line. Irk and Bluey joined them, accompanied by jokes that Irk was only good for dog food. Dust quickly rose, and men tied grubby handkerchiefs over their mouths. I've got an idea, said Irk. He told his plan to Bluey, who quickly assented. With that, Bluey started to cough, and cough, and cough, and cough. Men jeered him, thinking he was trying to avoid the race. Bluey, who had surreptitiously rubbed some dust in his eyes, raised his hands in silence. He coughed once more. I'm not trying to get out of the race, he said. I'm coughing because the dust is thick. But the truth is that I don't have to get out of the race. Irk here would win just as easily if I was on his back as if I wasn't. There was a response of jeers, criticism and ugly comments. Bluey knew they didn't believe him, and why should they? How would a riderless horse know the course, let alone have a motivation for winning? Bluey found himself taking more bets at long odds. He put up everything he owned, his riding tack, his boots, the watch his father had given to him when he turned 16, even his tools and clothes. The stewards called the horses to the track. Bluey watched as Starlight's jockey approached his mount. He was so small as to be practically Lilliputian. Then Starlight's owner came over, and Bluey found himself wagering the last thing he owned other than the clothes on his back. Irk himself. Bluey told Irk about the last bet he'd made. Come out of this ahead. We're going to be very rich, but fail to win and... You bet me? Irk asked him. You bet me? I have faith in you. Irk snorted with equine disdain. I know you're going to win, Bluey told him. Seventeen horses and sixteen jockeys took the line. The stewards looked along the field. The crowd grew quiet. The starter glanced at Bluey, who nodded back. The gun cracked, and they were off for the first of three laps. I've been to Hebel, and they still talk about this race. On the right kinds of afternoon, when the sun is low and the beer is flowing, the old people tell the story passed down to them by those who were there. How after the first lap, Irk trailed at the back of the pack. How at the second, when the horses emerged out of the dust, he was trailing even further. How they galloped hard and strong as they passed the bell and disappeared into the dirty sky for the final time. The dust was so thick by now it was a pall over the town. The entire population of Hebel and many others waited at the finish line, straining for the first view of something that would tell them who was winning. They say it was like a storm approaching. A low drumming sound that grew louder as it came towards them, above the noise of hoofbeats were the cracks of whips against horse flesh, the shouts of jockeys and the wheeze of desperate horses. Then they came into view. Starlight was in the lead, but just behind him, right on his heels, was Irk. The crowd came to life and a tremendous roar emerged as the adrenaline began to flow. The loudest was Bluey. He screamed and screamed as Irk began to catch up to Starlight. With 300 yards to go, he'd gained another length 
At the 200, he was right alongside. Starlight's jockey flailed against his mount. Starlight shook under the stings of the whip and shuddered every time the spurs cut into his side. His ears were flat and foam flecked his nostrils. One hundred yards left. The old people grow quiet at this point, reverent, some still disbelieving, even after so many years. Fifty yards to go, they were neck and neck. Twenty yards to go, Irk ahead by a whisker. Ten yards to go, Starlight fought back. They crossed the line together. The roaring crowd stunned at last into silence. No one knew who had won. As the realisation washed over them, as they breathed again, all eyes turned to the race judges. It soon became clear the small discussion on the finish line was turning into a louder argument. Then, nothing. A decision had been made. A slip of paper, the scratch of a nib, an elegant copper plate result holding Bluey's future. The crowd shivered with collective anticipation. Bluey had gone down to the track where Irk was waiting, covered in sweat and was panting fit to burst. Then the announcement was made and the crowd erupted. Who won? Irk shouted. Who won? You did, you silly coot. You did. Man looked at horse and horse looked deeply back. Well, bugger me, Irk said. Bugger me sideways and call me Charlie. It's a long ride from the Queensland border to Gippsland, even harder in the heat of summer with blowflies queuing to suck every drop of moisture from the sweat on your face. Bluey hadn't stayed in Hebel that night. He knew there'd be all kinds of people happy to take his winnings from him, from the honest intention of the local call girls to the somewhat less honest desires of the card sharks and shysters, as well as the blatantly dishonest local thieves. After he'd collected their money, he and Irk headed north, a few miles out of town, they carefully doubled back, skirted Hebel's fringe and were soon a long way south. Bluey hoped to have a good start on anyone tracking them the next day. They settled down before a fire, sharing beer and cigarettes while they talked and played a couple of hands of gin rummy. You cut it pretty fine, Bluey said after a while, just half a nostril hair in it. I should have lost, Irk admitted. Starlight had it all over me, but he hates whips and spurs. He had to make it look close, though. Irk chuckled and laid down some cards, three of a kind. Blast you. A warm breeze shook the leaves of the wiry mulga that sheltered them. Bluey turned his face upwards, inspecting the sky and saw stars as thick as semen. He fancied he heard celestial music. A song from the heavens, a cosmic choir with a chorus of comets. They played a few more hands, but then Irk snorted, dropped his cards and rose to his feet. We have company, he said. I can smell them, one man and a horse. Bluey threw dirt over their tiny fire and night fell on them like a coal sack, the ancient radiance of the nebulae above giving only the faintest of light. You didn't need to put out the fire, sir, said a husky voice. Who are you? No need for alarm. I'm not here to rob you. I'm on the same journey you are. Bluey peered into the darkness but saw nothing. The name's Shorty, and I was probably the only other bloke who put money on your nag. I've been following you since you left. You can't track at night. The stranger didn't reply. 
Bluey heard only the wind pushing branches, turning them into slow, leafy pendulums. I thought we might travel together. I'm visiting my family in the south and then joining up. I'm doing the same. Bluey heard footsteps coming closer until they were nearly on top of him. He waited for the worst, a blow in the night and a fight, but there was nothing. I'm reaching out my hand to you, sir. Bluey held out his own, felt it gripped firmly as Shorty clasped it in greeting. Good to meet you. I don't know many blokes in this region. Can I put a billy on? Oh, that'd be Bonza. Bluey rekindled the fire as he heard water being poured then the hiss of steam as a can was placed on the low red coals. It wasn't long before both men held a thick cup of black tea, flavoured with the perfect amount of gum leaves and ash. How'd you find me in the night, Bluey asked. Tracked you most of the way. Then I heard your voices on the breeze, yours and your horses. Bluey was silent. He looked at Shorty trying to see through the night. I've never heard a horse speak before. It's unusual admitted Bluey. Once knew a dash hound fluent in German, though. A bloody deep voice for such a little creature. Little blighter loved playing tricks on people. Jeez, it made me laugh. What did he say to them? Wouldn't have a clue. Don't speak a word of that lingo myself. But the little dog, oh, he could talk it for hours. The two men sipped their tea for a while. What do you call your horse? Shorty asked. Irk. You could make a fortune with him, you know. Bluey knew. I suppose you did all right today, but you could take him to the zoo or scientists or the circus and sell him for a million quid. He's my mate. I don't want to sell him. You reckon he'd talk to me? I can't say. You could try. Shorty appeared to be thinking about it. G'day, Irk, he said after a while. Irk snorted a response, pure horse talk, not the remotest part of English in it. Maybe when he gets to know you. Bluey wondered if he should feel more uneasy, but somehow he knew he could trust Shorty. There was something implicitly honest about him. He could hear it in the kindness and calmness of his voice, in the direct way he spoke. This wasn't a man who knew subterfuge or secrets. There was one thing Bluey found out about him in the morning, though, which he hadn't considered. You're an Aborigine. Shorty stared back at him through eyes thicker and darker than a treacle in a gingerbine winter. Suppose I am at that, he admitted at last, smiling, white teeth against blue-black skin. Never met an Aborigine before, not properly. I'm a proud Gamilaroi man. I know a thing or two and have a few yarns I can tell along the track. He smiled again, and Bluey smiled back. Bluey wandered over to Irk, took him to one side. What do you reckon? Think we can trust him? he asked. He seems all right to me, Irk answered. Well, except for that bloat of cockatoo shit about a talking dog. Can't think that anyone would believe that. Other than that, though, he seems true blue. Nice-looking filly, too. Guess I'll be hearing some of your stories, seeing we'll be travelling together, Bluey told Shorty when he went back to him. Pleased to meet you, Shorty, and shake your hand in the light. The two men were interrupted then by a tremendous whinny from Shorty's horse. They looked across to see Irk frantically mating her. Bluey ran over, tried to grab Irk's halter. Can't a horse get a bit of flame and privacy, Irk shouted. Get down at once. Nearly there, Irk told them. He eventually backed away from the mare and his front feet landed back on the ground. Geez, I needed that, Irk said. Shorty's horse shivered her withers and flicked her tail. Maybe Madge needed it too, Shorty suggested. You bring any beer, Irk asked him. Shorty shook his head. Not allowed beer, me, he told them. Although dehumescent, 
Irk still dangled impressively, and both Bluey and Shorty kept glancing at him. Why can't you buy beer? Irk asked. They won't allow it. Happy for me to work for low money, but they control my movements and won't let me buy grog. I'm not even allowed to enlist, he added. Well, how are you going to join up then? Irk asked. I'll tell them I'm a Maori fella. They're allowed in the army, not us though. That's why I'm heading south. No one knows me down there. Sorry about the beer, Irk said. Tell the truth, it doesn't really worry me, Shorty said. I like to keep my head clear. Black man away from his mob needs to do it if he wants to stay safe. And also, I prefer opium. Been getting it from Ming Lee, fellow that farms the vegetables on the riverbank. Nice little pipe of that in the evening seizure, right? Let me tell you. The two men saddled their somewhat sweaty four-legged companions and cleared away their campsite. Then they rode off, two of them with broad smiles across their long equine faces. They were north of Colorannabri, riding slowly on bush trails and avoiding the roads, and their conversations were as wide-ranging as the countryside. A week later, they reached a small range riding along a track which wound upwards in a gentle slope. It was here they ran into trouble. Stand and deliver. A man jumped down from a large rock and blocked their path. He was old with a long white beard. He looked from Bluey to Shorty and back again. What have we got here, he asked. We're heading south to enlist, Bluey explained. We don't really have anything of value, so if you'll just let us pass. That's funny, said the man, because two blokes left Hebel a week ago loaded with cash. One was a redhead, the other was an Aborigine. And if I didn't know better, I'd say it was you two. Just a coincidence, Shorty said. Yeah, I think you've made a mistake at it, Bluey. No harm done. Quite understandable, really. Now, if you don't mind, we'd better get on our way. We have an army to join. The man looked at Bluey, then Shorty. Put your hands up, he said. King and country aren't going to be happy about this, Shorty mumbled. I think you'd better get down off those horses, the man said. But I said get down. Only do as I say. It's just that it's really hard to dismount with our hands in the air. For a second, Bluey thought the man was going to shoot them, but eventually he told them to put their arms down while they climbed off their horses. From what I've heard, it was a good race, and I'm kind of sorry you won't end up with your winnings, he said as he rummaged through Bluey's saddlebags. Not so sorry you won't rob us, Shorty pointed out. Cheeky for a blackfella, aren't you? I'm a proud Camilleroy man, Shorty replied. Then the most extraordinary thing happened. Irk, who'd been gazing and not paying much attention, suddenly took a step towards the man. Steve, Steve Farrell, is that you? The man looked around, not believing a horse could speak, trying to find where the voice was coming from. It's me, Irk, from the Snow Mountains. You caught me and Wolf down by the Mumba River. You broke me. Steve stared right back at Irk. Blow me down, he said eventually. Do you remember me? Irk asked. Steve slowly shook his head. If I had a penny for every pony I'd pulled out of those mountains, I wouldn't be standing here robbing these two, he explained. But maybe I don't need to rob them now. No one's seen the likes of a talking horse before. I'm going to make a fortune. I thought we had something special, Irk said. Once knew a bloke trained a wallaby to sing the Mikado. Now that was special. Couldn't say anything else, but sang Gilbert and Sullivan word perfect. Wouldn't ever do it in front of a crowd, though. Only for us around the fire after it had a few drinks. Christ, it was funny. 
Steve turned to Madge. You got any little secrets, darling? He asked. Steve had broken a thousand horses, trained them to obey the whip and the bridle, snipped off testicles with a plomb of a spring gardener attending the roses, but it seemed he didn't know them as well as he should. As he stroked Madge's mane, Irk now lashed out with a perfectly aimed hind foot, striking Steve in the shoulder and knocking the gun from his hand. Shorty grabbed some rope, and Steve was soon sprawled face down on the ground, tied up tighter than the publican of the Wallabadar pub on Empire Day. I knew I shouldn't have let you keep your nuts, he muttered. You never did know your right place. So you do remember me. I knew you did, Irk said. Don't big note yourself. You weren't the only special one, let me tell you. Keep going and you'll find my hoof in your face, Irk said. This is a touching reunion and all, but we need to work out what to do with him, Shorty pointed out. No offence, but aren't you a little old for bush ranging, Bluey asked Steve. And fair go, but that's a greenhorn mistake to walk behind a horse like that, especially when you're getting close to his mare. Steve looked up from the ground. Too old for breaking horses, maybe. Not too old for my other work. I've been doing it a long time now. I've seen them all come and go. Ned, Captain Starlight, Thunderbolt and Black Mary. But none have lasted like I have. That's why the story of the Night Raider is legendary. Sorry? asked Bluey. Who? asked Shorty. The Night Raider. I'm the Night Raider. Never heard of you, Bluey told him. Anyway, if anything, this is daylight robbery. Maybe my night vision isn't what it used to be, but I've been robbing stagecoaches since they were invented. Have you heard of the Night Raider? Bluey asked Shorty. Shorty shook his head. I came here in the first fleet, said Steve. Ran off from Sydney Cove after about ten years. Been living off the land ever since. Told you he was a hundred, Irk chimed in. Why aren't you dead? Bluey asked. Steve shook his head. Maybe death has forgotten me. Or maybe he just can't find me. Either way... I'm not complaining. Sure, the lumbago pains me some nights and the rheumatism and arthritis aren't fun on a chilly morning, but since they settled the Morton Bay colony, I've spent my winters up there. Sounds like even death has never heard of you, Irk said quietly. There was what can only be described as an embarrassed silence as Bluey, Shorty and Irk looked anywhere but at the face of the most famous anonymous bushranger in Australian history. Mind you, I don't have a brass razoo to my name, Steve added. He lay on the ground, looking up mournfully at his captors. Sorry about bailing you up and all, he said. They heard a whinny. Just me horse, Steve told them. A chestnut gelding trotted into view. Holy mother of blessed God, it's Wilf, Irk exclaimed. Steve looked away from Irk. You told me you'd got rid of him. You said he was no good. But you kept him and sold me. Steve didn't reply. You kept Wilf? If a horse can look embarrassed, that's how Wilf looked now, keeping his head down and eyes averted, watching everything that was going on, except Irk. You get that I'm a talking horse, don't you? Irk asked. Do you understand how badly you stuffed up? It wasn't personal, said Steve. I'm not angry, Irk said. I'm not mad, but I'm not going to lie. I'm very upset about this. He walked a short distance away and pawed the ground, snorting once or twice. Awkward, said Bluey after a while. What are we going to do with this fella, Shorty asked. They were interrupted by a shrill whinny and they turned to see Irk chockers up Madge again. Oh, Jesus, said Bluey. 
I think he needs to let off steam, Shorty said. Just leave him. Bluey turned back to Steve, but having two horses mating only a few yards away is a distraction of almost epic proportions, so the men were forced to wait until Irk finally climbed down from Madge's back. Damn uncomfortable with a saddle on, he told them. No one made you do it, Bluey said. It's just a bit of stress relief, Irk said. Not like I have to take her to the village dance a few times, seek her father's permission, flaming propose, you know. We get it, said Bluey. In the end, they decided that Steve was too old to leave tied up on the ground, but also too old to be taken to Murrundi and offered to the troopers. But they couldn't just set him free either. It's a bloody conundrum, Shorty said. In the end, it was Irk who found the solution. Untie him, but we'll take Wilf with us, maybe make a few dollars selling him somewhere. Not that I expect we'll get much for that dumb gelding. Oh, don't take Wilf, said Steve. Could have made a lot from me, Irk reminded him. Millions of quid, perhaps. Really looks like you backed the wrong horse. As it was, they let Wilf go two days later. He was a stubborn animal as soon as they took possession of him, free with kicks and nips and prone to constantly slowing them down. He galloped away in Steve's direction as soon as Shorty finally undid the lead rope. Good bloody riddance, Irk shouted. You might find Steve, but you never find your balls. Having listened to Bluey reading Homer aloud for so long, Irk could recite huge slabs of it and entertain the humans as they travelled. The warm air smelled of a million square miles of hard earth and dry grass. They set out early most mornings, rested in the middle of the day and travelled again until it was too dark to see. In the evening, Shorty would pass his little pipe around and the talk would drift from the earth to the flaming stars and white metal meteors spinning above them. Incredible, Burke said. I feel like I'm bloody Pegasus. One afternoon when the flies were thicker than Bluey's freckles, they saw clouds rising tall in the south. They were thick and black and high, storm forests sparkling and silver trees of lightning. Thunder grew louder as they rode onward. The temperature dropped and the wind rose. Shorty started to look agitated. What's the matter? Bluey asked. Don't want to be caught when the river rises. But it's as dry as a dead dingo's donger, Bluey said. You don't know this country, Shorty said. This is not a normal storm. Won't be long until we'll be up to our necks in floodwater. Not today, though. I didn't say it was going to happen today, Shorty said. The storm will pass over us. We'll be drenched and tomorrow the sun will dry us out. But the water will have filled the catchment up north and then the surge will rise and that's when we'll need to worry. Bluey looked south. Before them, for all the miles he could see, was nothing but barren flat land until way off in the distance, three, four days right ahead, lay the far range. When the storm hit, they were soaked. They all danced naked in the full might of the squall. The sullen stink of stale sweat that had surrounded them for so long lifted and everything was fresh. Even the flies seemed cleaner. Shorty didn't allow them to linger and pushed them south and east towards the hills. Sure enough, on the third day, he raised his hand to his mouth. Shh. Bluey strained to listen. I can hear it, Irk said. The river. Shorty nodded. 
They rode closer to the bank. Sure enough, a long finger of water was now exploring a path along the dusty bed. Soon tiny islands of brown foam were sailing along the rising stream. But that's nothing, Bluey said. Not enough water to splash your short and curlies. All floods start with a single drop, Shorty said. When the river breaches, you're a goner unless you can reach high ground. Knew a fellow who spent two weeks in a tree. Supposed that was survival of sorts, but he was never right in the head again. Not with all that dark, dirty water roaring below him for so long. When any moment that tree might have been ripped up by its roots so he was plunged into the wetness and drowned to death. How long have we got? Bluey asked. Less than a day. But the range is still so far. Although it was hot, they rode hard. A quick walk hour after hour after hour in the blazing sun. Anxious eyes over their shoulders, waiting for the moment they would see the first trickle on the ground. Ears tuned for the splash of a hoof in mud. When night fell, they stumbled forward under the thin baby's cry of a newborn moon. Shorty holding a lamp ahead of them. Irk and Madge suffered with the pace and the strain of movement in the dim light. Then Shorty brought Madge to a halt and they stood quietly in the dark. Bluey heard a faint rustle of soft feet running and jumping and the sustained slithers of others, as those who could flee the rising tide tried to outrun the water behind them. And soon, underneath them, then quiet again. The river is smothering the crickets and ants and spiders and drowning them all, Shorty explained. The silence is their funeral. Away in the distant east, the first candle of dawn finally appeared. As the light rose, they saw their plight. Around them now were countless reflections off the wet ground showing the extent of the water's reach. They were still miles to go before the foothills. It was low scrub country, and although the sky had been clear until this time, clouds full of foreboding and anger now began to roll in over them once more. I don't like the look of this, Shorty muttered. Madge snorted in agreement. They rode away, at first trotting, and then at a steady canter. When I get back to the Snow Mountains, I'm going to visit my favourite creek, Irk said, when we're a long way from this. The lightning and thunder were already too close. Another spear of white electricity split the sky. The first licks of wind. Ancient gods applauded the lightning with a deep, rolling fury. The horses galloped water splashing off their hooves, both Irk and Madge nearly spent. Then Shorty slowed, despite the urgency. Smell that? What? Oh, Jesus. Yes. Smoke. The Swaggy's worst nightmare. The dreadful determination of a bushfire racing towards them, ignited by the flint of the looming storm. Flick, flick, flick. A zoetrope of lightning. Behind them, the water. Ahead, the flame. Madge pawed at the ground, straining to breathe after the recent exertion. Only Irk raised his head, exploring the trail, the slow rise of the long ridge still too many miles away. You for being drowned or for burning, Bluey asked Shorty. Shorty shook his head. We're not giving up yet, Irk told them. One last effort. Dump the saddlebags. You need to lighten the load. It took seconds for the buckles to be loosed and for the worn leather satchels to fall to the ground. Follow me, Irk shouted to Madge. It was the stuff of legends. A full tilt gallop ahead of the rising water and alongside the smoke and flame, two determined straining horses and their equally desperate riders. Mile after mile passed beneath their hoofs, horses and men labouring for each breath. 
the flicker of constant lightning, a continual roar of thunder, the soggy ground slowing them as the hooves sank into slushy mud, the smell of smoke closer and closer, and now a new experience, swarms of flies and beetles flicking around them, battering the air near their ears, whizzes and whooshes. The ground became too muddy to ride. The men dismounted and squelched through the sinking soil, the horses struggling along behind them. Madge's terrified whinny. Then a promontory of sorts, a ragged spur of land rising out of the ground, the horses straining to gain purchase on the mud bank after the efforts of the last furlong. At last, climbing slowly up, the smoke enveloping them, the chill of the flood at their feet protected from both, barely. Bluey and Shorty lay on the soft ground, hearing the roar of the fire as it bore down upon them, Madge's eyes wild and terrified, the flames overhead lighting the sky brighter than day, continual shocks of twisted air as gum trees exploded above them, the sound louder than anything they had ever known. A lightning strike just behind them, an instantaneous clap of thunder as the mound they sheltered on collapsed. Madge shrieking and whinnying, Irk stoic and pensive as he struggled to free himself from tons of mud. And then, silence, ash falling like snow in a noiseless world. Then gently, the rain. The bank had trapped them all, and amazingly, Bluey now heard the voices of other men. You right, Digger? Bluey looked up, not understanding. Irk, that's your mate. He's sleeping, Cobber. Come on, we'll dig you out. Form a party over here, boys. Careful of the one that's asleep, don't wake him, eh? Men with stubby shovels dug Bluey out and lay him on a stretcher. Bad night, eh? Irk. The men looked around. They were exhausted and had tired, haunted eyes. A few smoked, thin, crumpled cigarettes drawing in the smoke like it was better than air. The first man reached into his khaki jacket and retrieved a crumpled pack of woodbines. Like one, he asked. Bluey reached out a hand. They lifted the stretcher and carried him slowly away. Careful with him, boys. He's been through the flame and ringer. Get him to the rear as soon as you can. It was two more days before Shorty found Bluey in the field hospital. Bluey's eyes lit up when he saw him lurch into the tent. It's truth, Bluey, you had me worried. Bluey didn't say anything. It was a hell of a night, Shorty said after a while. Don't know how we survived. I was certain that last shell had our name on it. Bluey turned away, his eyes watering. Come on, old mate. You're safe now. Bluey turned back to Shorty, straining to speak. The words wouldn't come. Eventually, one syllable, the only word he would utter for five long years. Irk. I'll look for him, Shorty said. There was a latrine detail came through two days ago. I thought I saw him haul on the wagon. I'll find him for you, mate. Bluey's eyes watered again. Shorty was back a week later. Bluey looked up with expectation, hope which was swiftly crushed when he saw the downcast expression on Shorty's face. No joy, Bluey. I've been searching high and low. I've been listed as missing, but this is more important. Not sure I could face another night like that one anyway. Blow that for a lark. I'm going to keep looking. Irk, Bluey whispered. Irk. Two days later, Shorty had news. 
It's bonds are bluey. It's all over. They signed the armistice. Flame and war's finished, mate. Bluey shook slowly. Urk, he replied. Urk, urk, urk. In the months that followed, Bluey was moved to Dartford Hospital and Shorty came over to England whenever he could and all Bluey ever said was, Urk. Then one day Shorty had more news. They're getting rid of the horses, he said. We can't take them back to Aussie because of the quarantine. Some are going to the Brits, some to Egypt. A few blokes have said they'll shoot theirs rather than lose them. Bluey reached out, grabbed Shorty's arm. It's all right, mate. If he's here, if he made it through, I'll find him for you. Bluey didn't see Shorty again till it was just before he was due to board the hospital ship for the trip home. He was on the docks, actually waiting to embark when Shorty found him. Luxury trip back to Melbourne town for you, Cobber, he said. Bluey looked up at him. I have someone to see you, Shorty told him. He took Bluey's wheelchair, led him round the corner. Urk, Bluey said. Where the hell have you been, Urk asked. Bluey stood, wobbled over to Urk and put his arms around the horse's neck. Don't get all emotional on me now, Urk said. There were calls from the docks. The nurses were looking for Bluey. We haven't long, Shorty explained. You have to get on that ship. They won't let Urk aboard. The blokes have tried everything to get the horses home, but the brass are being true blue assholes. I have a plan. Seeing I'm missing already, Urk and I'll take the long way home. Shorty held up a piece of paper. The clerk gave me this. It has your new address on it. Shorty didn't have time to say more as he pushed Bluey back towards the docks and the nurses who were waiting for him. Bluey was in tears again as he boarded. You look out for us, Bluey, Shorty yelled. And Bluey did. He sat on the veranda of the Repat Hospital all the long days, from dawn till dusk, scanning the horizon for his horse and his mate. Sometimes at night his nurses would hear him dreaming, uttering the single word he spoke. Urk. Time doesn't permit me to tell the story of Shorty and Urk as they travelled across Europe, into India and Burma and Indochina, of the adventures and exploits of a man out of his country and a talking horse who took every opportunity for a joke along the way on a three-year epic journey. They sailed from Singapore, walked through Indonesia, sailed around the coast of New Guinea and island hopped through the Taurus until finally they landed on the tip of Cape York. As soon as their boat grounded, they leapt ashore and Shorty kissed the red soil. Urk was a whaler, a horse bred in outback New South Wales with hybrid vigour, intelligence and strength. Only one officially made it home from World War I. Although Sandy never went to France and he died only a few years after the war. Even the best, like Bill the Bastard, who carried five men to safety under fire, were left behind. But that too is another story. Now, on the very top of Australia... Urk, the last whaler, stood and sniffed hard, desperate for a scent of home and yearning to see his mate again. It took them three months to reach Victoria. There were more floods and fires and people wanting to kidnap Urk at every opportunity and Shorty met a woman in Longreach and had to be dragged away. 
But eventually, they outran all their problems and finally saw a cluster of houses at the end of the Hume Highway. Like a lot of journeys, the last 10 miles were the hardest and most tiring of all. Shorty took out the tattered scrap of paper with Bluey's address on it and they edged closer to Bandura. It was nearly dark when they arrived, the colourful shreds of the day fading to grey nothing. They spent the night under an enormous peppercorn, Irk grazed while Shorty boiled a billy and opened a can of corned beef. When the sun bit next morning, the travellers wasted no time in looking for their friend. As luck would have it, Bluey was on the lawn when Irk and Shorty turned up. Blow me down, said Irk. Look at you. Hello, old mate, Shorty said. Tears came to Bluey's eyes and he cried silently all morning. Several times nurses asked if he wanted anything but he waved them away. They visited every day, talking to him sometimes, but more often content to sit next to him, quiet and still. One afternoon, with a nod, Bluey let them know he was ready to leave. Next day, when Irk and Shorty appeared, Bluey was waiting for them by the gate, and they struck out together, heading north, Bluey clutching a small roll of clothes, his battered copy of Homer and not much else. They read from the book on the road that stretched all the way back to central Queensland. No one really knows what happened to them after that. My grandfather told me the yarn when I was much younger. When I was in my 20s, I did some research wanting to know more. I talked to the old people and heard the story of the riderless horse winning the Hebel races. There were whispers of an immortal bushranger who was out there still. In the War Memorial in Canberra, I found Shorty's papers with a description in his battalion diary of the awful shelling they encountered that night, followed by a list of the dead and the missing. They didn't keep records of the horses. One summer about ten years ago, when Shirl and I were on a break, I retraced their steps up north. I had to find out what happened. I had to know more about the horse Hercules, known as Ur, and Majesty, called Madge. John Francis Shillingsworth, who was also known as Shorty, and a redhead called Bluey, his real name I never knew. I questioned a hundred old men, blokes with tired, roomy eyes, fellows with noses the size of mushrooms. Some claimed to know Bluey and told me he'd worked out his days in Gaduga, a quiet bloke who kept to himself. Bloody brilliant with horses, though. One old bloke, though, I was in Bingara, asking around as usual when I came upon him on the edge of town lunging a pony. The afternoon was dusty and warm. The ground was hard and littered with burrs. The old fella could have been Methuselah. He was all skin and bone with sun-leathered skin and wiry muscle that had known decades of hard work. He said Bluey, Shorty and Irk had made it back to Queensland. Shorty wanted to go back to Longreach. So they parted ways, shook hands firmly, looked into each other's eyes and said goodbye for eternity. Bluey and Irk had turned around and eventually found a block, settled there, farmed cattle and horses. Looked and looked and looked and one day saw Madge behind a plough, worn but fit, paid too much for her and brought her home. Years spent building a slab house, putting up fences, digging a vegetable garden near the creek. Some evenings, the thick, sweet smell of opium. Others, the squeal of horses in the rut. Eventually, Irk stopped talking. 
He'd been saying less and less anyway, then one day he just stopped altogether. Bluey met and married, had kids, men out living horses. One day Bluey lost his old mate for good, borrowed his neighbour's Massey Ferguson and dragged the poor old nag to the hole he dug, burying him reverently. That was a long time ago. The man was quiet then. His eyes looked to a small stand of she-oaks near a tiredly cranking windmill. Before he said anything else, we were interrupted by a commotion. We turned to see his pony being mounted by a fit-looking stallion. If you've ever stood a few feet away from a stallion and a mare going at it, it's a daunting place to be. We let them finish. The old fella told me the stallion was Irk's grandson and a finer horse I've yet to see. The bloke walked away then, but before he went, I thought I saw his eyes wet with tears, eyes shaded by eyebrows flecked with red hair despite his enormous age. A battered book on a fence post, its pages like swan feathers casually flicking in the soft, dry breeze. I should have asked him, but I never did. Some things are better left as mysteries, don't you reckon? That was David Field reading Irk, The Last Whaler. Please like Ear Movies or rate it or whatever your podcast platform has set up to say you enjoyed it, or even just tell your friends. This has been Biological Poker, Season 1 of Ear Movies. Keep an ear out for Season 2, Conversations with Buckthumper. I'm Simon Luckhurst. Thanks for listening.